Hello and welcome to The Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First, I'll be talking to my boss, John Kelly, about the Omicron outbreak in New York, why voters under 30 are ditching Joe Biden, and what the hell is Puck anyway? He's going to explain. After that, we'll be joined by Julia Yaffe to talk about Senator Joe Manchin and the apparent death of Build Back Better. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope that you enjoy The Powers That Be. This is a special Christmas week edition. I am joined today, and this is the reason I said it's special, by our fearless leader at Puck, John Kelly. And, you know, I was talking to John and I wanted him to just kind of explain what Puck is, how we got here, what's the point of view, what's the business model, why Puck is different, smarter, cooler than every other media brand out there. Just kidding. But I do think that if you're listening to this podcast, if you're reading our stuff, uh, you like it, um, but you're still maybe figuring out what it, what it is it we're actually doing here. Um, so, John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Peter. And um, you did a good job of, of dressing up the fact that I'm Matt Bellamy's understudy. So <laughs> anyone who is uh, tuning in to, to listen to Matt uh, explain who won the week or, or what went on at the box office over the weekend. Um, I promise I'll, I'll do my best to say something worthwhile to to cheer you up, but happy to be here, Peter. Yeah, one of the biggest notes on this podcast is that everyone loves Matt, so don't be too disappointed that, <laughs> that John's sitting in from his home office in Northern New Jersey. But before getting into, you know, what Puck is, like what our path is, can you just like, let, let's just go back to how you and I met, which is, um, I used to work at CNN, then I was working at Snapchat, and then you and me and Rob Slitterman and I forget who else had a little email thread, um, and I didn't really know you, but I was working at Snapchat doing news and politics, but I certainly missed writing. I mean, that's sort of my number one passion when it came to journalism was writing. And you were just like, hey, write some stuff for us here at The Hive at Vanity Fair, where you're working at the time. And I quickly found that, not to flatter the boss here on this piece of audio content, but you have a really, how do I say this politely? I am a curmudgeon in some ways and feel like the attention to good writing has sort of faded a little bit. And you have an appreciation for the kind of old school magazine journalism that people used to care about. You really care about and, and, and nurture writers. You care about journalism and you really want to differentiate the content that we're doing from other places so thank you for that. But what, you know, what, what is your point of view on journalism these days? Why, and, and how does that lead us to Puck? Well, I remember that um, it wasn't quite lunch and it wasn't quite dinner or drinks, but I remember that we definitely started drinking and it was, um, <laughs> uh, we, had a, we had a great time. We were sitting at Mirandi. Um, <clears throat> it was me, you and Rob, and I think Rachel was there too. Um, and I'll, I'll put it this way. I, I feel like we... We were just beginning then to see the very kernel of what I hope we're, we're seeing here at, at, at Puck. Um, and maybe I'll give you a sense and give our listeners a sense of, of, of how we got here. And um, uh, I don't want to be the center of the story. I'm, I'm certainly not. But but um, I'll just tell you how I kind of came upon this journey, which is I started my career in magazines at, at the end of the heyday of the magazine era of the, the early 2000s. I, I worked for Graydon Carter, who was this larger than life figure. And 
you know, people look back in the era and think, oh, wow, you used to water the plants with champagne and everyone flew the Concorde. And it's not entirely true, but it's not entirely untrue either. Uh, but what you would learn if you were just a, a sort of whippersnapper back then was you could create an enormous cultural product for a, a pretty cost-effective uh, amount of money. Uh, Vanity Fair was not nearly as big as HBO or Apple, but in the elite cultural imagination, it, it had a, a seat at their at their table, and you could you got an incredible view of that by be, being perched next to Graydon. I always thought of myself back then as being Graydon, sort of Henry Hill. If you think of the Ray Liotta character from from Goodfellas, um, I could see how it all really worked. And and being the editor chief of a place like Vanity Fair is an impossible job to explain to anyone. No one knows what that is. You're the most fashionable person that a literary person's ever met. The most literary person that a fashionable person's ever met. You're bringing these worlds together, and you're being an utter original. And yet you're also printing money, which the the brand did back then. I mean, it was a you know near two hundred million dollar revenue business in in the United States alone. So. That world changed. I think we know that our, our, our career sort of dovetails with, with that change, which really started in the early 2000s. We didn't know it yet with the rise of, of Google um, and the crawling. And then it, it became much more present in view after 2008 uh, and the financial crisis when a lot of uh, luxury advertising went away, at least temporarily. And there was a beginning of a hollowing out of the middle in, in this industry. A lot of things that were traditionally known as magazines were starting to go away. And with them, what I think of as magazine art would, would go away. And, and there, there's actually a great line that I, I uh, learned from um, probably an apocryphal line, but um, it's attributed to Jan Wenner that magazines were for their time a perfect technology. They gave you something to utterly connect with. You knew all the authors that were in there. You could recognize the typefaces. You, you were part of an in crowd and you knew the jokes. And sadly, in the early part of the last decade, there just wasn't an economy to support that. The, uh, the ad uh, support economy went away, went to the internet. There was a belief that internet advertising would increase on a CPM unit. The opposite happened. So as a result, all publishers ran towards scale and a number of things panned out that were really unfortunate for the industry. Um, and it led to the fact that at a certain point, you know, in 1994, you would have known the difference between a People story, a Vanity Fair story, a New York Times story, an Ebony story, a Rolling Stone story. But by 2016, I think every one of those brands was covering the exact same thing. It was Trump, you know, extreme weather, Game of Thrones recaps, marooned cruise liners. And that was because they needed eyeballs. That was the coin of the realm. So I, I started a, a business at Condé Nast called The Hive, which is how we met. That was hopefully, the, uh, I thought, at the very beginning of figuring out what the new uh, trend would be, which would be engagement and figuring out how to monetize readers who wanted to read great authors and wanted to connect with them and would be willing to do it, to, to pay a little bit of money to do it. And a couple of things were just starting to, to become clear there. The magazine arts were going to return because subscription economics were going to replace scale economics for a lot of publishers. I think another really important thing happened, and this is what we talked about that day, was that individual brands were about to become more important than, than large institutional brands, or at least as, as important. And we see that widely right now. And as a result, you know, journalists were going to be creators. They weren't just going to be people who existed in, you know, Times New Roman font. And uh, they were they were podcasters. They were, you know, people who could create IP for series. They could do speaking tours. They they could be consultants. Uh, They're storytellers. And they needed more ways to, to flex those muscles. So I actually, I, I left the Hive 
to go uh, work with TPG, the private equity company, to understand the the new business fundamentals that were going to under undergird the industry. And um, it was pretty clear quickly that what we used to call magazines were going through an evolution that was really, really similar to music, where there was something called an album, which had songs on it, and then Napster came along, and the defining unit, the album, just went away. It was all singles. All the artistry in the album just went away, and then it's kind of come back again through the you know Pandora state and now the Spotify state, and I, I think that we're sort of at the Pandora stage of, of recreating the magazine era, and uh, we're trying to do that. You know, we're trying to be an early mover at Puck by treating journalists as influencers, by incentivizing them to flex all of their creative muscles, by recognizing that good work should be part of a membership business. We don't want to give away anything for free, not because we're stingy, but because we know the extraordinary value that people like you and Matt and Tina and Julia and Bill bring to the table. And that we recognize that we're recreating that kind of connection that Beyond Winter, either, you know, uh, apocryphally or not, talked about back in the day where you know what you're getting when you opened up a magazine. You know how to flip to the next thing if you don't want to read something. You know how to how to traverse the, the back of the book. We want Puck to be the same cultural touch point. And we wanted to be, you know, we felt there was a huge opportunity for um, to do this at the very top of the market for people who we know are already reading the New York Times and the Post and Bloomberg but know that there's still something else going on there, that there's an inside conversation that they're not always getting. And that's the opportunity that uh, that we've run at. Two things jumped out from that that uh, stuck with me and, and are reasons that I'm here. One is you're so right that magazines felt like a community. There was a, like a familiar stable of writers. There was a voice and you could tell the difference between each publisher and, and, and feel like part of a community. Uh, and that was sort of a promise of early social media too, that you could be connected with people who share your interests and share your jokes. But, you know, in, in the social media sense, that's disappeared in the world of infinite scale too. So it's nice to feel like you are part of a community and we do subscriber events and conversations and, and that stuff is really valuable um, and will be even more so in the future. And then two, the idea that news has just become so homogenous and commodified and there's a real demand out there in the world for stuff that just doesn't sound like, smell like, look like the rest. You you were much more articulate in describing the clickbait SEO wars of, of the last decade. But, you know, people are willing to pay 10, 50, 100, 200 bucks to read stuff that they can't get anywhere else. And also that doesn't bend to, this is sort of a hobby horse of mine. And this is a, like kind of like a Twitter isn't real life conversation, but doesn't <laughs> bend to the will of the mob, the chorus, you know, the received wisdom, the idea that you're supposed to say certain things. I mean, you, like we you've said in a lot of our editorial meetings that we say the quiet part out loud and, you know, without being like deliberately provocative or trolly, like our goal is just to not worry about the tut tutters of the Internet. Our goal is to just be good journalists and, and tell you what's really going on. And that's. That idea has great appeal, um, but that idea really kind of only exists behind uh, subscriber businesses, I feel like, at this point, right? Yeah, yeah no, I, I mean, I agree with, with everything you're saying here. I think that we, we learned that the old world was probably a little bit too exclusive, um, but we also learned that when everything is is opened up, 
it can be an angry world out there. You know, a lot of what, what's gone wrong with, with, with Twitter is um, that it's hard to be different. The incentives are, are to follow the conventional wisdom. And that created a lot of journalism that was really, really similar. And, you know, what was, was always so interesting to me, um, you know, again, not to make this biographical, but when I was a kid, like, Vanity Fair was built around these stars like Dominic Dunn and Christopher Hitchens and Maureen Orth and, and uh, Marjorie Williams. And then, you know, in the next era, the, the, during the era of the SEO wars, I, I like that, they had no value all of a sudden. Like, they, they, it just seemed that those kind of beautiful, thoughtful, smart, insiderly writers who knew all of their sources and, and knew what was going on in their worlds um, in the deep way and wrote like adults were just, you know, they couldn't keep a pace with the hamster wheel of the sort of microdosing of, of, of scoopage and, and, you know, what happened when you beat the Huffington Post to a story by 30 seconds. Like, it was bad for everyone. It was bad for consumers. I mean, that was the person, that, that was the group that it was, it was the worst for. And so there is a more civilized and disciplined way to recreate uh, brands now. And, um, I think that, you know, we're, we are definitely living through an age where new brands are replacing old brands at a incredibly high clip and, and not just in media in, you know, you can see with, you know, um, consumer brands like Warby Parker and, and, and Casper, but media is actually, you know, interesting in this conversation because the, the sort of digital and marketing tactics that started in business and politics are now descending to media. And what I mean by that is Casper didn't grow. And maybe they're not a perfect example because I think they're probably about to be delisted uh, from the stock exchange, but they, they didn't grow their company or, or Rory Parker. I'll say Rory Parker because everyone loves Rory Parker. They have extraordinary product that's affordable, but a big part of the core competency of the company is their marketing. They know how to find their future subscribers. They know how to engage with them. They know how to create a real excellent marketing funnel where they create awareness at the top and then they create engagement in the middle. And then at the very bottom, they create retention, meaning people who buy glasses and continue to buy glasses for life. That's not just the work of a great product, although that helps. That's the work of incredible growth marketers and, and growth marketing philosophy. This, these kind of tactics didn't come to media for a very, very long time. It's sort of astonishing in retrospect. I think part of it is ego that the people who, who ran these big companies in the old days didn't want to work with marketers. They thought that it was all their golden gut that, that guided decisions and, and you know, created the great ratings or, or a best-selling you know, issue of a magazine. But look, Donald Trump's victory in 2016 is actually a triumph of incredible, incredible performance marketing. You know, I mean, Brad Parscale and, and his team sort of figured out the, the you know, six or seven pockets in, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Florida where they had to drive out outcomes of the vote. And they advertised in Facebook they, in totally malicious ways and, and scaremongering ways, but they were able to get outcomes. Growth and performance marketing have come to media now. And we, you know, at, at Puck, part of what we do, the most important part is obviously the journalism. It's getting incredible talent like you to be able to tell the stories you want to tell. I mean, I'm sure you could, I'm not trying to speak for you, but we've never told you you had to write a certain story with a certain headline in order to compete with the Huffington Post. Uh, we, that's crazy. You don't work with guys like Peter Hamby to do that. You work with them to let them be Peter Hamby. We have the confidence to do that because we know how to find our audience and we're creating uh, you know, a valuable marketing and tech stack underneath the business that will help us grow over time, knowing that we are living in an era again where new brands are going to replace old brands quickly. And, you know, we think that in, in this paradigm shift, there will be a sort of um, the, the hollowed out middle that we saw in the last decade is going to be replaced. <clears throat> and it's going to be replaced by brands like Puck that give you 
hopefully the best in both worlds. They give you the, the individual creative freedom that you might get if you were writing an individual newsletter and also the, the sort of institutional support that, that we're all used to because we've all come from jobs at, at large media companies where, you know, you've got a lawyer reading your work, you know, you've got, you know, multiple editors combing over everything. And that, you know, as you put it, hopefully people find that a lot of thought goes into the, the wit and style and, and um, sophistication of, of your arguments. And, you know, we're hopefully doing adult journalism here and we not just say the quiet part out loud, but we can cut through it pretty quickly because we know that we're um, we're engaging with a, with a smart audience and we don't have to do unnecessary both sides isms where, you know, and, you know, to be sure, paragraphs and <laughs> this this Republican person said this, this Democratic person said this. And then this person at the Institute of Centrist Centrism says this. Um, that's a waste of time. You know, we don't we don't need to play that game here. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll get on to a couple other topics. But one, one other thing I want to say about why I enjoyed working with you at, at Vanity Fair compared to CNN even and then and then now is that you and I are of an age the kind of older millennial type mm-hmm. that's us that came, I mean you came up smoking cigarettes in the West Village obviously but eventually <laughs> you worked in in magazines and you know I went to journalism school and my parents were journalists in, in local television news in Washington and and I you know I just cared about the art and passion of journalism and can be kind of cranky and snobby about it. But at the same time, over the years was able to surf the internet wave, uh, which was very disruptive to people older than us in, in the industry and is very difficult for people younger than us in the industry. And I say that with empathy, knowing plenty of them trying to, to make their way. Um, and so, you know, it does feel like sometimes that puck blends those two things where you have a, very sophisticated understanding of the business tendrils of the internet, the demand side of the internet and what works on the internet combined with the hopefully like writerly cerebral, great reported journalism that we we came up with. And that's something, I don't know, man. I was just like, that's something they, they let, they let me do at Snapchat too. Right. It's, which is, which is weird. Like if people, when I left CNN to go to Snapchat, people were very confused. And it's really that they gave me a rather long leash to be a good journalist. It happens that I'm working at a platform that reaches young people and is you know known for putting funny filters on your face. But it's reaching an audience that CNN never reached and an audience and a generation that really doesn't have a lot of direct touch points with news in the way that we did coming up. And then Puck feels similar um, in that we get to be as creative as we want, but our North Star is that... I remember the great stuff and I want to do the great stuff again. And I, yeah. I think that's what we want to do. And I hope, you know, frankly, f- other journalists listening to this, like uh, understand that because it's hard to really make the leap from the big establishment news organizations, TV, digital print, whatever to a new venture. But it's, it's way more fun and fulfilling on the other side. Once you do that, I think. Well, we'll, we'll play that clip over and over again, but, but sure, there's, um, change is hard for, and it's hard for journalists too. I think journalists who lived through the last 10 years um, are shell-shocked by what's happened in the industry and, you know, it, it, it's made them very risk averse. And, you know, I, I've encountered that uh, in many conversations and, and what I respond with is this is actually the time, like this is the time to go for it. We know that a lot of the skills and arts that we were taught when we were kids. This is an apprenticeship business, right? Like they they are coming back on a new platform. 
It's not just digital. It's digital and subscription. It's direct to consumer. And it's right there for the taking. We just want to encourage elite talent to move to this platform and to let them know, actually, like, if you do what you're good at and what you love doing, you'll have a greater opportunity than you've ever had before because you don't have to do all the other things that um, that many traditional newsrooms or mandate-driven organizations force them to do. We're, we're not trying to, to scoop the New York Times on I- extreme weather we're, or, 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 you know, what's going on in Capitol Hill right now. Like, that's just not our game. You know, we're, we're, we're complementary to that. Um, and when we first started this conversation years ago, I think when I first told you and I left um, the Hive and, and, and we first chatted, I, I think I probably sounded kind of nuts. Uh, but what I think has become clear since is that journalists really can chart their course here and that we're building the technologies to be able to allow them to connect with their audiences in, in new and powerful ways. And actually, you know, there, there's no uh, better example than the guy I'm filling in for right now. I mean, Matt Bellamy is like a tour de force um, in our culture, absolutely beloved, does incredible work on every medium. And it's our job as a company to to connect him with every person who is, you know, runs in a media company runs an entertainment company, but also the the concentric circles of people below them who are just interested in the business of Hollywood in a way that um, that Matt can uniquely offer that's more authentic, that, frankly, than any institution. You know, because um, he he puts a face on it, and and that transition is really interesting. That the transition from these these large kind of Olympian brands to more right sized brands, and, and you know, we're hoping to do a puck is. Is you know build a brand of brands. I mean, all of our all of our talent are individual brands who have individual followings, you know, and, and many significant ones. And we recognize that we're all stronger together. And as we you know chart a, a course in, in this new world, we think that the activity is just going to be in, in the middle of the market between the big institutions and the sort of DIY journalists on the other side who are, who are making a go of it. Uh, some can do it successfully. We think that's great. But we think that um, many people are going to find that we can offer the best of both worlds, both opportunity and you know creative opportunity, and also the um, the stalwart um, support system that that you know we've all grown used to. Um, I want to ask you, John, about another media story real quick, which is Omicron. <laughs> and I say it's a media story because at the end of last week, and then over the weekend, plenty of people that you and I know or follow on social media living in New York, started tweeting, everyone that I know has coronavirus now. The lines are long. They were tweeting pictures, sharing content, bravely posting that they had also contracted coronavirus. And there's always been this East Coast bias slash New York bias in the media. It applies to sports, applies to weather, it applies to politics. But I feel like it contributed to this larger panic in the in the media in uh, the way that this is being covered, because if the first sort of big outbreak had happened in Milwaukee or Austin, Texas, where there aren't big media companies and there aren't thousands upon thousands of journalists tweeting all the time, would we be treating it as seriously or intensely as we currently are? Because, you know, New Yorkers have a lot of PTSD from early last year and New Yorkers are obviously living in one of the densest places in the world. And But the fact that they're sharing it so much on the internet makes it feel like that experience is a reality for everybody when it's not. Am I just being anti-New York? Like, what's it like well, there right no, now? No, it's funny. Um, it's definitely different in um, in LA. The experience is different in LA than it is in New York. But I think there is some 
scary PTSD and pattern recognition going on, NBA players in, pro, in COVID protocols and school cancellations were the two leading indicators in March 2020 that this was about to get bad and real bad. And, and that happened this week. And I think that it, it seems like there are a lot of holiday parties in New York that probably created spreader events. And, and just anecdotally, it seems like a lot of people are, are sick right now and we don't have the beautiful weather that you have. It's like, you know, 37 degrees right now here. But you're absolutely right. I, I think the actually my my sort of sinister take would be that this is we're in a, a news desert right now. I mean, one of the one of the extraordinary you know factors of the Trump presidency was that it was just, you know, it, it, it deluged media, all of it for for four years. And now with Washington largely out of the spotlight, I mean, there's really only so much you can uh, care about um, build back better. Uh, and, you know, it, it just these micro updates are are exhausting. So collectively, I think the, the culture cares less about it. And when there is a spike, yeah, I, th- I think you do see the media um, uh, committing some of its worst sins and, and overreacting both because most of the media is in New York and they can see it. And also because there's not much else to write about right now. I saw a tweet and I forget who, who wrote this. So forgive me for stealing, but it said this whole New York COVID social media experience puts the me in media because everyone is just wanting to testify to the, the stress, anxiety, the fact that they got it. And it's just like, I don't know. I also, this is just, again, a, a pet peeve, but there are just so many people out there in this country who don't have a voice because they're not, they're either disenfranchised economically, politically, they're not attached to media, they don't have a platform, who had people die in their families and went through some serious trauma. So I just really don't give a shit if like, so-and-so posts like, I got COVID, make sure you get vaccinated. <laughs> like, it's just right. like a useless object to me. And I just, I, I don't want to see that because um, we're all dealing with it in our own different ways. I know you media person feel like everyone wants to see your <laughs> experience with COVID, but guess what? We yeah. do not. We do not. No, that was actually, of all the appalling things Chris Cuomo did, I thought that that, that was actually the most appalling was, was locking himself into the basement of, of his Sag Harbor or Shelter Island mansion and and totally exploit his illness while, while Sanjay Gupta looked on um, in, in despair. And I'm sure the guy was sick and I don't want to like besmirch him for that, but I think to the point you just made, there were people who were dying and there are people who were deeply sick who did not have the resources. And it seemed like that was a weird and uncomfortable form of virtue signaling. It obviously ranks pretty low on the, the large list of uh, collective Cuomo sins in the last like, you know, 12 or 18 months. But it, get, it gets to your point that, that um, we'd be lying if we didn't say the media had been exploitative of, uh, of this pandemic. One other note, too, is I have a, a piece up this week on Puck about Joe Biden and young voters and why his approval ratings are just absolutely in the trash with voters under the age of 30. And there are a lot of reasons for it. But in talking to a lot of experts and activists in the sort of youth voter space, a few people mentioned to me that there's there's actually survey data on this. Uh, Harvard IOP has this in their their young voter poll that a lot of young people after Trump just started not tuning out the news. Like they just, it was too, that's a generation that's, that's says that they are dealing with a lot of anxiety and isolation. A lot of it's related to COVID, but after Trump and and they just like, didn't want to follow the news at all. And so that, that just goes to what you were saying about how we're in living in kind of like a news vacuum right now. Like people, I mean, there was a, the wall street journal piece last week about the Washington post traffic, yeah. engagement going down. I mean, obviously like CNN and MSNBC have seen ratings go down. That's just 
people are kind of trying to tune out the Trump years and all of a sudden COVID comes back. And that's actually something that people pay attention to. It's eerie that that journal piece was was fascinating. I, I, the, the stat that I kind of remember, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but it was something to the effect of like in late 2020, 27 of the top 30 performing articles in the Washington Post were about Trump. And at the same time, a year later, like three of the top 30 articles were about politics at all. Um, everything else was lifestyle or tech or, or you know, their version of the um, the Snapchat pet interface. Everyone, everyone's playing that game. They're all, all ripping you off. Um, but I'm glad you brought your piece, which is great. I've got some notes for you. Um, I'll, I'll deliver to you after we finish chatting. Um, by the time this is up, everyone will have read it. But one thing that I, and it never occurred to me until I read the story, was that so many of the economic trends that we think of during COVID, you know, the inflation, uh, PPP, Biden's, uh, you know, uh, Family Act, where he's, he's giving, you know, $333 checks to, to families. These are lost on young people who have very, very tenuous economic circumstances and just have a totally different experience. They live either boomerang with their parents or they live with a, a bunch of roommates. They are the most disposable um, employees at their companies, and they're desperately trying to get a, a hang on what's going on in, in the economy and, and, and begin their, you know, their launch in, into adulthood and into careers. And it's extraordinary. I mean, I suppose that COVID's forced us to, to focus on every different age class in, in different ways, and we had to worry about the, the most vulnerable first. But it, it made me very sympathetic to how overlooked their grievances have, have been in all this. And, you know, I do wonder whether they will continue to keep, you know, maintain these grievances as they get older. I mean, the big point Peter makes in the story, for those of you who haven't read it, is that younger voters are not necessarily party voters. They're, they're issues voters. And they don't care about things like infrastructure because it doesn't affect them. They care about the Green New Deal. They, they, they care about equality and they want to make an impact. And largely, you know, Bidenism has, has ignored, um, you know, these requests, these these solicitations that it's focused on, you know, it, its agenda. And I don't know, I, I want to throw it to you. Do you think that they'll, that Gen Z and younger millennials will, will become, you know, cynical, hardened old boomers who just drive around SUVs telling people to get off their lawn? Or do you think that they're really going to carry these these issues and these sort of nonpartisan issues or, or postpartisan issues with them and actually force our politics to, to really realign a little bit because people are going to want to cater to that uh, to that group one day. Yeah, I mean, depending on how much they turn out to vote, Gen Z and millennials combined are the largest like voting age slice of the electorate there is. Um, they just vote at lower rates, but they voted in record numbers in, in 2018. They doubled their turnout compared to the previous midterm election in 2014. Again, that was a reaction to Trump. But it's also that they came of age at a time when party politics felt kind of remote. A, a very smart uh, analyst at Tufts University told me that, like, I feel like if you're our age, you work in the media, you work in politics, you just assume that young people are going to vote Democrat because that's what they did for Obama. And yeah. we just forget that that was a long time ago at this point. And the people who are becoming politically sentient right now or during <laughs> the Trump Trump years came of age at a time when there were like massive school shootings everywhere, when income inequality is growing, they're entering a gig economy and not a secure economy. And then climate change is a huge deal for them too, for that generation. I mean, we I see this in California, like climate change five or six years ago was discussed as a long-term thing we have to deal with. Right. 
And now it's in our backyard. And if you are 18, 19, 20, this stuff will be in your face in 15, 20 years. And, and you know, they're worried about maybe not their kids and their grandkids, but they're worried about themselves. And because of all of that, everything feels very high stakes. That generation is also, you know, for better or worse, a little impatient, uh, maybe because they feel the existential threat of my city might drown. And because of that, John Della Volpe, who runs the the Harvard Youth Poll at the Institute of Politics, told me that Gen Z specifically feels like they can't sit elections out. Like as much as they don't like Joe Biden right now, and they certainly don't like Trump, and they feel that the two party system is stupid and the Senate is archaic and all of these things. Older millennials might have a tendency to kind of like sit out an election. They've been able to find comfort, fulfillment outside of politics in some ways, whereas Gen Z is like, we have to vote. We have to participate. That was his optimistic take. Um, whether that means they will eventually change the world or become cynical, like boomer types, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. That, and that's what's so interesting with the youth vote is, you know, unlike sort of racial demographics or in, like economic demographics, like the, the youth vote changes, like people just get older. And like today's youth vote is different than the youth vote 10 years ago. And Democrats just can't take for granted that they're going to show up and vote for them. This doesn't also mean that Republicans, Trumpy Republicans are going to go peel them off. Like no one is saying that actually. Um, But Democrats need to find ways to make politics relevant for that generation. And one of the biggest things just to punctuate it, John is, is student loans and Biden promised during the campaign to forgive up to $10,000 of federal student loans. Hasn't done that. You know, he still could, he could before the midterms next year, but that's something that feels immediate compared to Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill, those long tail, you know, pieces of legislation that include things like the child tax credit and Medicaid expansion. Again, those are things that don't feel relevant. Infrastructure doesn't feel relevant at all if you're 20 years old. But student loan relief is something that feels incredibly relevant. Uh, You know, it's it's supported by vast majorities of people under the age of 40, maybe more complicated and controversial among all ages. But, you know, that's something that could bring support home for Joe Biden if it's if he chose to do it. Yeah, that, that could. It's funny. Um, one other thing that you mentioned the story that, that is worth thinking of too. And I and I um, I have a take here. I won't I won't get too hot. But um, <laughs> you and I both lived as, as then young people through uh, 2008. And we saw what a generational figure Obama was in just, you know, bringing people in, into politics, um, bringing young people into politics. And, you know, being, you know, that that generation's uh, John Kennedy or whatever, I mean, a much a much more popular version of John Kennedy. People forget that John Kennedy actually was not very popular and and, and really lost that election, if, if not for his, you know, his father's um, uh, tactics in Chicago. But <laughs> one thing that I can't help but think is obviously we have a, an older president who beat an older president and it may be running again uh, in a couple of years against the same guy. But I do worry, when I'm being honest, that the rewards of politics are so diminishing now that it is very hard to entice so-called generational figures. That um, when you think about the, um, the the generational talents in our world and, and all the doors they choose from to uh, to exert their generational talents and their generational strength, this is a tough one. Um, the the Twitterization of politics is is ugly. Um, the, the requirements, uh, especially in the House, of, of fundraising and, and running all the time uh, are, are challenging, multiplied by, by the media requirements. And politics itself is so uh, such a mercenary sport now. now I, I actually often viewed um, AOC as a bellwether, like 
you know, we will know um, how enticing our politics is for our best and brightest if she decides to stay in the House past age 40. You know, um, it, it, uh, our colleague Dylan uh, had a, a beat one of his stories. He was joking, um, don't at me or at him, um, <laughs> about, about AOC uh, getting the Maddow slot. And it was kind of hilarious because it, it was true. Like, I remember this too, when, when, when Graydon left Andy Fair, you know, executives were, were talking only half jokingly about like, how could they get Jon Stewart to take the job, you know? Um, and, and for Maddow, like, the only person as big as Maddow is, or, you know, who can reclaim the audience is, is someone like AOC. I imagine that there are other extraordinary opportunities that someone in her shoes um, has in front of her that will allow her to spread her message on her terms. Will being president be one of them one day? I don't know if it's worth it. Um, and I'm not saying she's the only generational figure out there, but my, my, my point is, is simply, um, boy, I hope we don't ruin this office for the next generation of people who might want to seek it out because that's a big part of the enthusiasm gap and why younger people, I think, unscientifically, I didn't study poli sci at Tufts, I don't have the data, but it seems like we're, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's disillusioning young people and, and making the system, uh, you know, very uncorrectable. Yeah. And, and the one other note about the piece I wrote, and then I'll let you go, is that I talked to, Biden's particularly soft among young Hispanic voters. He's, right. he's softer among Hispanics generally than Obama was or Hillary was, but uh, young people, it, it, it is stark. And I talked to one organizer in Texas. Um, she's a dreamer and she, you know, works to register young Latino voters and get them to run for office. And her point was young people care the most about what's relevant to their lives, mm -hmm. directly relevant. Again, they don't really care about the infrastructure bill right now. And she said a lot of people she knows are just redirecting resources, money, efforts into getting people to run for local office, getting people to run for city council, school board, like whatever, because national politics feels remote, broken. And yeah, to what you're saying, like not very fun either. <laughs> like these, this is the reason you saw Devin Nunes quit Congress to go <laughs> right. work for Trump's media company. Like it's more fun. I'm going to make more money. And like, I can still have as much of a voice as I did like running the house ways and means committee uh, and, and media on the right and the left is, is probably a more exciting opportunity than running for conventional national politics. No, it's true. It's that's the, um, the, the Mark Leibovich thesis that he coined somewhere in the, in the middle of the last decade that at some point along the line, people started running for president in order to get book deals and serious XM gigs. And, um, uh, it's had a corrosive effect. Sorry to be such a downer, man. I, I you know, um, <laughs> I, uh, didn't mean to, to do that. No, no, it's all good. There's nothing corrosive about News. The greatest media show on earth. <laughs> John, thanks for joining us, man. Have a good, have a good holiday. All right, you too, Peter. Thanks so much. Coming up, I talked to Julia Yaffe about Senator Joe Manchin and what the failure of Build Back Better means for Democrats in 2022. Thanks again for listening to the powers that be and for supporting Puck. Our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know. The real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is great. Our scoops and analysis will help you understand the most important stuff happening today. And when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters to grow our business and pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at puck.news. Joining me now on the powers that be is our woman in Washington, Julia Yaffe. Julia, Merry Christmas, Hi. Happy Holidays. Hi. 
it is not happy holidays right now for Joe Biden and Democrats um, because over the weekend, Joe Manchin, the precious 50th, 51st vote, rather, said that he's a no on the Build Back Better bill as it stands. <laughs> and so because he said it, it's not like he let a lot of like space into I, my mind could be changed. He went on West Virginia radio on Monday and, and, and said the White House was too mean to him when they criticized him after he gave that interview to Fox News saying he's a no on BBB. But is there is there a world where Joe Biden can rescue elements of, of this agenda in the new year or is it gone forever? I think there's a world in which they can salvage a little bit of it, maybe as individual packages or like a really slimmed down version. You know, I think on the Democratic side, I don't know how many memes I've seen going around of Joe Manchin getting a lump of coal or a lump of coal money in his stocking this Christmas because he owns part of a coal mine or part of a coal energy company. Personally, I wasn't that surprised when he killed it because he was just, he was never that for it, you know? Like, he was dragged kicking and screaming the whole way and, like, like he never really said yes and it's like, he's not really that into you. It's like, he's not really, he was not really that into BBB. And the math just wasn't there for the for the Democrats. But I do think that from what I'm hearing from people around Manchin, it feels like a big miscommunication because they feel like he did get to yes and he gave the White House like the most that he could do and they didn't really say yes. So Manchin's side thinks the White House didn't say yes. The White House thinks Manchin didn't say yes. But yeah, I think as soon as the inflation numbers started going up and as soon as, yeah, as soon as that happened, I think it was very clear that he was just never going to go along with this. And I think they might be able to do something piecemeal or something much, much smaller. But at this point, like, can you count on the left flank of the party who are so pissed off, right? Like it's at this point, it's not just about mansion anymore. It's also about, you know, the squad, which in retrospect was right, you know, and not voting for infrastructure because it had been decoupled from build back better. And they knew that, or they argued that without infrastructure, build back better wouldn't pass. People said, you're not team players, but in retrospect, they were right. And then there's the moderates who were forced to kind of walk the plank on this. But, you know, it's never going to moderates in the House who are facing tough reelection races. You know, they voted for this big spending package that didn't pass the House. So there's a lot of worry among moderate uh, House Democrats that they won't like that. They'll be pilloried for this on the campaign trail and that some of them will lose their seats. And there have been. Around Washington, people bringing up historical examples of when this happened, like in 2009 with a cap and trade, et cetera, and BTUs. There's plenty of examples. So those are the worries. Yeah, I got a, as you were talking, an email just came through from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez.com, subject line, Joe Manchin, uh, and then just attacking Joe Manchin, kind of in the same way that Bernie Sanders has in the last few days, but also raising money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, they definitely feel emboldened if not emboldened sort of like a told you so it's a told you so moment i guess for for the squad although i don't i don't totally i don't know i don't i totally i don't totally get voting against one of the biggest 
progressive spending bills in American history to like prove a process point. But um, mm-hmm. they were right that they weren't sure. They weren't sure. Um, but you like just for people listening. I agree with you, by the way. I do yeah. agree. I think it was it was kind of like, OK, OK, cut off your nose to spite your face. Yeah. But yeah, it felt that way. What is what is Joe Manchin like personally? Because one of the reasons he gave when he went on this West Virginia radio show on Monday explaining why he came out as a no was, you know, I care about civility and the White House was being uncivil toward me, uh, you know, after I said I wouldn't vote. And that was the final straw. Is he like, what's he just see like as a person? I mean, is he an asshole? Is he a nice guy? Is he just like in a avuncular like West Virginian living on a boat? Like what what's his personality like? Uh, I have never met him personally, but I get the sense that he is one of those guys who really takes his independence and his orneriness very seriously and that it's kind of part of the brand to not give a shit what anybody else is saying. Um, I talked to somebody who knows him really well today and I was asking him this person about the, you know, all the memes and all the tweets and all of the emails like the one you mentioned were just like torching Joe Manchin and asking, you know, is this counterproductive at all? And has it been counterproductive the whole time? Like, do you really want to pillory the guy, the guy you need to get this thing over the finish line? And this person was like, he doesn't give a shit. He, first of all, is not aware of half of it. (laughs) And the rest he doesn't really care about. And I think that even if that's not true, I think it like that's the message that they're that people around him are putting out is also interesting, right? That he's just that that all he listens to the only people he listens to are the people with West Virginia area codes who are calling his personal number. Like that's also his shtick is that people call his person not not the not the main line in his Washington office or his West Virginia office where you know some like. 20 year old volunteer picks up the phone, but apparently he gives out his cell phone number and this is all, you know, it's like, it's very kind of old school politics. And I think he really relishes that, that he doesn't live on a house in a house. He lives on a boat. Like he doesn't do anything the way other people do it. He's just a different kind of guy and he's eccentric and ornery and like just a independent straight shooter. And I think that's really the the image he cultivates. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was say. The, the image he would want you to have is that he cares the most about West Virginia. It's not about being like creating some transformative legislation for generations. It's about how this will impact my home state of West Virginia. Even even a little more than like, will he run? Maybe this is about his reelection. And he's I believe he's not up until 2024. But yeah, I, I, I he's a kind of inscrutable guy but i think you you have a good point like harry reed when he was majority leader and minority leader like he didn't give a shit about what politico wrote about him and and i think there's plenty of politicians out there governors members of congress senators who read all the clips who care deeply about their image in the dc press corps or whatever and mansion might not and you know that is a political strength Perhaps, um, it's also but a political it makes people angry. Strategy. It's a political strategy too, right? To act like you don't care, even if you might care. I think it's a very astute political strategy, especially for people back home. Like he's of a party that is no longer represented at all in Virginia. I mean, Trump won it by 40 points. 
and he's a Democrat representing them, like he has to act in order to, I think, not, you know, be tarred and feathered in in the town square in West Virginia. I think he has to act like he doesn't care about Washington, that he doesn't care about the rumors and the and the pressure and all of this, that he's not of Washington. He's of West Virginia and let the, you know, swampy rumor mill churn, but he's, you know, he's focused just on his constituents. Like that, I mean, what else can he do in, in his political situation? Didn't he like run a TV ad when he ran for Senate in 2010 where he shot the cap and trade bill with his rifle? I mean, West Virginia is obviously like a huge coal state. This is like, yeah, this was a, this is one of the ads I remember from, from 2010. He was governor of West Virginia and he, by the way, Supports Obamacare. I think he later ran an ad where he shot a shotgun through, sorry, shot a rifle at an anti-Obamacare lawsuit. But in 2010, when cap and trade was on the table and Obama and Democrats were dealing with that in the Senate, he, he he's on camera like shooting a gun through the cap and trade bill. That's a big, but that's just emblematic of, of his state. I was living in Russia at the time, so I, I missed that. But yeah, I mean, there's like a whole genre of Republican or like, People running in Republican states, running ads where they're shooting shit. Like, yeah, I think he was the he was the guy who started it. <laughs> who was the House member that just ran an ad? Oh, I think it was Marjorie Taylor Greene, where she shot like a high caliber sniper rifle at a little Prius that had socialism written on the side, and it exploded in a fireball. Jesus. Yeah. Well, I guess that works in her district. So just taking a few steps back, there was a, it was sort of received wisdom that before the the Virginia governor's race, for example, that if Biden could just pass this bill, that it would help Democrats, they would be motivated. I'm actually still not clear and polls are mixed on this, like how much people actually know what's in the bill, whether it fires them up or not. But it's just another indicator that Biden heading into the midterms either doesn't have a lot to run on necessarily, or it's just not on offense. Is the White House just like pissed about this stuff? Are they furious? Or are they just playing a long game where they're like, this is part of the process. Like just because something's going bad right now in December doesn't mean it won't go better in February. You know, what is what is your sense about Democrats' political hopes heading into next year? Well, I think that's what they want you to think, right? And that's what we've been hearing all year is like, just because it didn't pass in July doesn't mean it won't pass in September. And just because it didn't pass in September just doesn't mean that in October, like we've we've got this, we, we, you know, we've got the hands on the wheel, and we're, we're good. It definitely doesn't help Democrats. But like, one of the issues that Democrats face is that they're a very heterodox party. In a, like in an ideological sense, they're a pretty diverse party, much more than Republicans who do have ide- some ideological diversity, but it's in like a much, much narrower spectrum. And Democrats can't win without, as Biden showed in 2020, can't really win without independents. And independents are weird ass voters. Like they'll vote for Obama twice and then vote for Trump and then vote for Biden. And then, you know, uh, maybe vote for Ron DeSantis in 2024. And I think for a lot of those voters, like at least the conventional wisdom in Washington is both among Republicans and Democrats I've spoken to, 
is that these voters didn't want anything like Build Back Better. They didn't want an FDR for president. They didn't want an overhaul of America, of the American economy of America. They just wanted to go back to normal. They just wanted something that was less crazy than Trump. And like all of this is extra. This is like for the left flank of the party, which the Democrats also need to win elections. They can't just win with independence. They need their base to come out. So I think they're kind of in a pickle where the two flanks or like two big flanks that they need to win want mutually contradictory things. Yeah. I mean, I see where they're coming from in both ways, where you come into the White House and the first thing they did was obviously re-up the relief package, get checks out. But then and you, that's you, and that you can argue, sorry to interrupt, but that you can argue is like getting us back to normal, right? Like we're cool with that because you're just we're just totally. taking another step back toward normal. Yes. And so maybe they look at the Senate and they say we have 50 50 Senate. Kamala's a tiebreaker. We need to. Because we don't have much time, we'll probably lose the House and Senate. We got to get everything through at once. And. That was a miscalculation um, because it was too big for people like Joe Manchin and maybe Kirsten Cinema at times. And then the way the press covers legislation, it, it, there are some through lines. One, they always cover the price tag. Two, they always cover the process. Joe Manchin is a good example. Are they in or are they out? Are they on board or are they not? What does it mean for the politics? And then only when the bill passes does the press start to cover what's in it. And so I say that to say the public doesn't know what's really in the bill yet. And so well, by, by going so hard on this huge package, <laughs> you're left being like still trying to explain it. This popularity is still uncertain. And then senators end up with a lot of leverage because it's not popular with the public. Well, yeah, I hear you. A, we don't know what's in the bill, right? Or like what was in the bill because so much of what is in the bill depends on the top line number, right? Like it, you have the top line number. And then based on that, you like adjust and push and pull on parts of the parts of the package and fund some things more than others, cut other things, right? Like those things were always in flux and some things got cut like family leave and then put back in. So like sometimes the policy was the process or the process was the policy. Uh, the other thing is like, you can blame the press, but I would also argue that, you know, what else is there to cover if there's no bill yet, right? And in some ways, the press is like a shark or like my ultra-sensitive home alarm system where like the slightest, they only react to movement, right? They see movement and that's, and that's what they cover. And the only movement was this back and forth with these negotiations. And also, it's just like, that's what's interesting to editors. That's what's interesting to journalists here. I don't think people anywhere outside the Beltway give a shit about, you know, all of this. And like, or like outside of liberal Twitter, you know, liberal Twitter has been dragging Kirsten Sinema has been dragging Joe Manchin. And that is so great for both of them back home. Like, it is such a service to Kirsten Sinema to be dragged by the mainstream media or the quote unquote liberal media because her state is like, not very democratic, right? Like all these Democrats who are like, we're going to primary her from the left. Okay, have fun with that, right? Like there are a ton of Republicans and independents in Arizona. And all of this, her, both her posturing, both the media attacks on her and the kind of active left activist attacks on her, make her that much more popular with Republican and independent voters 
in Arizona. And I think that's true for Joe Manchin, too. So, like, again, back to my earlier point about this, this narrative being counterproductive. Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema occupy a lot of headspace on Twitter. But as a, a, to, to prove out what you just said, most people don't follow this stuff inside out. Most people might even not care. Doesn't mean they're dumb. They're just living about their lives. But one of my favorite bits yeah, on the, this. Like, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say Harvard, Harvard and, and Harris did a poll a few weeks ago and they basically did favorable, unfavorable for a lot of names like Trump, Biden, Bernie, Kamala, et cetera. And they put Kirsten Sinema in there and 50% of Americans have either never heard of or have no opinion of Kirsten Cinema, which is literally the inverse of how she's treated on the internet, where everyone has an opinion about Kirsten Cinema. Yeah. Most people don't know who this person is. And if we're talking about Biden's fate, build back better infrastructure. These are long tail spending bills. We'll see the fruits of their investments in years from now. But like COVID and gas prices are and maybe like consumer goods are like things that are actually real world tangible things that American voters see and touch in their everyday lives. And like it or not, their opinions of the president and the party in power are dependent on like things that are probably out of their control, but still COVID gas prices, inflation, those things matter to normal people. What's in the build back better bill isn't exactly like going to be a conversation topic when people are opening presents on Christmas on Saturday. Really? You don't think so? (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the thing though. I like, I don't think, I think you're right, but I also don't think that people's kind of consciousness of what is in the bill or what they care about, I don't think it's a meteorological phenomenon. Like, I don't think it just spontaneously happens. There's a lot of passive absorption of information, and there you have to talk about what is the informational space that a lot of these voters live in. And it obviously varies from place to place, but I think... If you're talking about this, you also have to talk about the death of local media and how media has basically become national, right? And this is all nationalized. And where most people get their news. Fox News is the most popular cable news channel. On Facebook, the things that are interacted with the most are conservative people like uh, Ben Shapiro, etc., like conservative commentators. And so a lot of their, I think, talking points get into the ether. For example, about inflation, right? Yes, it's here and it's real, but it's also part of a more complicated picture, which is that the economy is actually doing really well. And we're very close to full employment. And in fact, we're having a hard time filling job slots. And in part, the inflation is because we're recovering so quickly from this massive downturn in the spring of 2020. But, you know, the right wing messaging machine, which actually has these two very potent platforms and where a lot, millions and millions of people get their news or their information from, are hammering this one message, inflation, 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 inflation. And then people get polled and they say, yes, I care about inflation because they've been hearing about it all the time. And then there's a poll that comes out and says, Americans are really concerned about inflation. And then it's a news story. And then we talk about how Americans are concerned about inflation. And if you were an American who wasn't concerned about inflation before, and now you're hearing about how so many other Americans are concerned about inflation, maybe you should think about being concerned about inflation. So I think we have to think about that also, right? And the fact that people aren't really getting their local news anymore about like talking about other stories, you're just getting this kind of these two messaging machines and one is a lot better than the other. 
Yeah. And also like the, the kind of media that people engage with now in, in a nationalized social media driven ecosystem is look, I, I don't, I'm not high minded about this. I understand that even 20, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago when Walter Cronkite was on the news, like people still cared about entertainment and weather and sports before they cared about what's in this policy in Washington. But it's even more so now, like, you know, the stuff, an explainer of how much the child tax care credit costs is never, ever going to compete with like a video of Ben Shapiro dunking on Joe Biden, like falling down the stairs on his way up to Air Force One. Totally. You know? It's just like, that's just not how it works. <laughs> and the other thing, and the other thing that I think, I mean, it's kind of a catch 22 for Biden and his administration is that people elected him to not be Donald Trump, right? I think, <laughs> I think a lot of Americans vote for presidents the way I date, which is like every next person has to be the polar, the 180 degrees, the polar opposite of the last person. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. I just letting you in on a little Julie obviously secret, but um, know. you know, like he was in, he was elected to be the opposite of Donald Trump, and he was elected to be the normal guy, the calm guy. But one of the ways that Trump won and like won throughout his presidency was by keeping the news on himself all the time and creating constant things that you had to cover because the, it was the president saying them and doing them. And you don't see Biden doing that, right? Like he was going to do, remember he was going to do at when infrastructure passed and he signed it into law, he was going to do like a thousand events around the country. And he did like three. It was a good strategy because if the president goes to New Hampshire and says something like you have to kind of cover it and you have to send CNN has to send their people and like MSNBC has to send their people. I'm guessing they didn't do it because he's probably not up to it. But, you know, that's a failure of communication. Yeah. And that's this is something we said for both Obama and Trump is that and the idea of politicians in modern times being entertainers and attention merchants, you know, the Obama and Trump could get attention wherever they went based on just their celebrity. And Joe Biden is much more of a conventional politician and people don't really care about politics. But that's what they wanted with him, right? They, They wanted somebody who's just like after so much chaos and like, I mean, 2020 was just like so much fucking chaos. It was just like, let's pick the most normal guy. And normal, of course, means white guy. And he'll just be boring. But boring doesn't, you know, it's hard to sell your agenda and be boring. And Obama, you know, he was great at giving a speech and making people pay attention and like jerking tears, but he wasn't really good at selling. He sucked at selling Obamacare. He didn't sell it at all. He let people call it Obamacare in a a pejorative sense. He let Republicans define it. I mean, he was kind of arrogant about it, right? It was like, people will just see that this is the best thing for them. They'll just realize it. And I don't have to like stoop to explaining it. Well, actually you do. And Trump showed that you have to just keep yourself in the news and keep the focus on yourself and like on whatever it is you're doing to make people pay attention. Otherwise they drift off to something else. Julia, thank you so much. Have a great holiday. We'll see you in the new year. All right. See you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be, and happy holidays to all. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. 
I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next year.